Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. I am here with my co-host, Emily Jane Fox. Welcome, Emily Jane Fox. Good morning. This is a new dawn, a new day for us at Inside the Hive. We're coming to you on a Wednesday, uh, which is different than our typical Friday thing, but it's going to be the new normal here. We just want to get to you sooner in the week. Uh, There's so much going on. We like to be in the middle of the conversation. So from now on, you can come find us every Wednesday morning. You can still listen to us on Fridays if you want, but we will be ready for you on Wednesdays. I'm really excited about it. I'm very excited. We're going to help you get over the hump. We're going to be right in the sweaty, hot middle of the news cycle and uh, taking you right into the molten core of it. And we're starting now. Speaking of uh, molten hot core, tell me about your interview this week with Liz Smith. This is a very juicy one. Well, you know, she's very much in the news. She is a professional democratic communications and communication strategist and advisor. She's got a memoir out, Any Given Tuesday, a political love story that takes you through. Uh, She's worked for so many like huge political figures, Barack Obama being a big one. And she had a lot to do with helping uh, Pete Buttigieg become a national figure because she was working for his campaign in 2020. She has a lot to say about him and about his future. In fact, when I think about him and when we were talking when I was talking to Liz Smith, I was thinking about him. You know, I, I see him occasionally. He'll pop up on Fox News of all places, and he's like so incredibly incisive. He's still uh, got so much potential. You know, his whole career is ahead of him. One of the many candidates and people who, or politicians, I should say, who she advises us to look to for the future of the Democratic Party. We often feel like the future looks bleak and we can't see around the corner and we wonder if there's any hope, right? And she points us to some people she thinks can bring us that hope. But in addition to all that, her book is also just this juicy, gossipy ride, right, through the political storms of the last 20 years. Um, So that's fun and she's here and we're going to have a great talk. I can't wait to listen to it. I can't wait for some of that hope that I know all of us are desperate for. But but speaking of hope, you and I had our first in-person meeting this week, and it was everything that we'd hoped for. You came out to Los Angeles, and we can talk about why in a second, but finally we got to meet each other in person, and it was glorious, and we got to talk about all things inside the hive and not, and just was so lovely to see your face and see you in a three-dimensional figure. It was, I loved it because uh, it's sort of, well, it's funny because we're both journalists, but it took two years to fact check that we actually exist in three dimensions. And there we were, person to person. We, we got to hug each other. We were in beautiful Los Angeles, California. And I don't think you would mind me mentioning that uh, your husband, Lee Eisenberg, made me a fantastic uh, cocktail, which I was happy to drink. And I felt, uh, you know, like kind of, I got a little, a little bit of the, Los Angeles glamour that I knew existed and uh, that you confirmed for me. But that's two plus years on. As the co-host of this podcast, we made it official by actually acknowledging each other's physical presences, which is a wonderful thing. At at long last. And it was just, it was really the best. And uh, it was part of my plan to lure you out here. So you're here permanently. But you were here for a specific reason. And I want to talk to you about it. You have had a very exciting week and a new release. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, bizarrely, I have become a record producer 
at least as a uh, sidebar to my uh, usual journalistic efforts. So yeah, I produced a record. It's an album of music, but it's also kind of like a, a book with a social history in it because a few years ago, while I was writing my book, Sticky Fingers, which was a biography of Jan Wenner, I met a guy named Earl McGrath. And uh, not long uh, after I interviewed him, he had died and I went to his estate to find some pictures. And uh, while I was there, discovered a giant a trove of music, like in the form of tapes in his closet. And this guy had been kind of like a, um, I call him like the secret handshake of the 70s. He knew everybody mm. in that world. Harrison Ford, the actor, was his pot dealer. And, uh, you know, in the early 70s, but he knew Warhol and Mick Jagger hired him to run his record label. And he was sort of this unusual Renaissance man from a different era. And I thought, well, this is a whole story. And my journalistic instincts kicked in. And I was like, I need to write about this guy. He's definitely a Vanity Fair adjacent character. When he died, his obituary was published in Vanity Fair. In fact, Vanity Fair was the only one to publish uh, mm. an obituary of him because, uh, you know, he had a whole secret history. So this record, which has all this wonderful music, including early recordings of Daryl Hall and John Oates and uh, the New York Dolls and uh, all kinds of wonderful known and unknown characters. So I was out in L.A. for the record release party, and it's been kind of an exciting week. The New York Times uh, wrote a, a story about it. Rolling Stone just published one today. So I'm feeling like I'm riding this little... Uh, now I'm on the other side of the equation. You know, usually we have people on this podcast or in our magazine who are riding on some little cultural moment they're having. And it's nice to, to have one of my own for once. Well, can you just tell me a little bit about the kinds of music that you found in this closet and the kind of music that's on the record? I've ordered mine, but it's yet to come. I'm yeah. like literally going out to the mailbox every day like it's Christmas waiting for it to <laughs> arrive. Well, so tell me. It's, um, it, it, all the music is from the 70s. It's from 1970 to 1980 because this was the period when this guy Earl McGrath had this record label and the record is called Earl's Closet, The Lost Archive of Earl McGrath. And it is really takes you from like kind of country rock in the early 70s. Um, almost all of it was recorded in Southern California. Cool. And it has real California vibes. And a lot of the songs are about California. And so it definitely has a, a, a nice feeling, a good summer feeling. And by the late part of the record, in the timeline of it all, there's a lot of gritty New York punk and post-punk and funk kind of stuff because Earl has moved to New York and he has signed the poet Jim Carroll, who if you haven't heard of him, he wrote The Basketball Diaries, which became a movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. And so Jim Carroll had a band and, he's, and Earl sort of discovered him and, as a musician and put him on the map. Annie Leibowitz, our very own Annie Leibowitz, uh, took the cover photo for his record. And Annie Leibowitz, by the way, was very good friends with Earl. And as I reported in Sticky Fingers, just for a little gossip, they were lovers in mid-70s. You know, this is all sort of vintage yeah. gossip uh, with vintage music. And if you like that kind of thing, it's great. And I will just say, just as an aside, it's not just nostalgia. There is some of that, although you might not even know this music, but people out there, but... You know, it's from a time before the internet, and people just got together at parties, and that's how things happened, right? And this guy was sort of an alchemist of that Earl hmm. and his wife Camilla, they, who was an, he was married to an Italian countess, who had uh, traced her genealogy to like a Pope Leo the Twelfth or something like this, and so he was like a. This was a very strange 
group of people, but they brought in all kinds of cross currents and a lot involved in the art world. So from Andy Warhol to Ed Ruscha, you know, Rauschenberg, people you've seen in museums and heard about were friends of his. And he would introduce them to people like Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and, you know, on and on and on. And so for me, it was just like, hey, what is this whole about? What is this whole story? I'll dig it out. I'll write a 10,000 word story about it and publish it between two records, which is basically what I did. Earl's Closet. I cannot wait to listen to it. I can't wait to read every one of those words. This is just such a cool, it's a perfect subject and author combination. And knowing you and your work and hearing all about the music this weekend and hearing you talk about it now just makes me desperate to get it. So everyone should order it, have the feeling that I have now of anticipation that I know will be met by very, 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 very good product. So order that. And then stay tuned for this great interview with Liz Smith, and we will see you on the other side. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan, your co-host, I have a very special guest today. I have Liz Smith here, political communications veteran, author of a new memoir, Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story. She's here right now with me. Hello, Liz. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. This book, holy moly, I, I, it filled me with anxiety, I'm going to be honest. I'm like, <laughs> you, you're going through a roller coaster ride of all these campaigns you've been involved with, where there's Terry McAuliffe, John Corzine. Uh, Claire McCaskill, Barack Obama, Pete Buttigieg, and it's through the passing years as the political landscape kind of twists and turns, and it is, um, I mean, you can you can inhale this book. You can snort it. You can just snort it right up. You know, that's funny. I, um, I sent a PDF of it to one of my coworkers from Pete's campaign, and she said that she read it in one sitting. And I also sent it to um, Dorothy McAuliffe, Terry McAuliffe's wife, and she said that she read it in one sitting because I wanted it to, to make it feel like less like a political science book and more sort of like how I would tell a girlfriend or, you know, good guy friend over drinks what politics is actually like and what these campaigns were actually like. Yes, and it does feel that way for better and worse. There are times when you're like, ooh, this is a very icky blood sport. You're pretty unvarnished about that and about how one's personal life gets so, yours in any any case, so absorbed in it that it's hard to tell up from down sometimes. Uh, And it can be very emotional and anxiety riddled. And, you know, you're very candid about that. The news that came out front and center was, you know, your time with uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York and how that sort of relationship ended. He was somebody that you were close to. He was a mentor in some ways. We know his personality profile now more than ever. But what we learned is about the moment that you basically put your foot down 
as he's trying to survive what is essentially a Me Too scandal. Can you just sort of describe or reiterate that moment for us? I um, I consulted for Andrew Cuomo's campaign in 2018 during his gubernatorial race, and he sort of romped both in the primary, the general. I stayed close with him when I was on Pete's campaign. He would call me whenever he'd see, you know, Pete surging in the polls because he was as surprised as anyone, and he was very encouraging, sort of, you know, mentor-esque, father figure-esque, um, and funnily enough, oh God, this is awful. He was the first person to suggest to me that I should write a book. Mm. Um, of course, little did he know um, <laughs> how it, how my book would basically start and end. But then, you know, we kept in touch a little bit when he was sort of riding high as America's governor during COVID. But I was doing my own thing. And his team called me back in after he got hit with an accusation of sexual harassment by a former government staffer. And they basically said, hey, you know, a couple calls. We don't expect this to be more than like a one-day story. And I said, sure. You know, he was someone, as I mentioned before, I loved, I trusted, et cetera, et cetera. He vehemently denied the charges. And in all the time I'd worked for him... I never heard a whisper of this sort of behavior, and he'd been out there on Me Too issues, and so I thought sort of naively, if anything was going to come out, it would have come out then. But soon, you know, it it was sort of a quicksand situation. One accusation became two, became three, and then became four, and it became clear both to me and to the other advisors around him that he was not being, he was either not being truthful with us or maybe even not even truthful with himself uh, about the nature of his behavior with female staffers of his. And, you know, it all culminated in, in the attorney general's report. So what he had, he, what he did was when there were calls for his resignation, he called for an independent investigation by the attorney general's office. And in August, the AG put out a report and, you know, it had 11 different allegations of different natures against him. And, you know, just a week before he had looked a bunch of us in the eye and said there would be nothing, nothing new in this report. And then, of course, in the report, there was something about him saying wildly inappropriate things to a state trooper who was tasked with protecting his life and, you know, touching her inappropriately. And that was when we were all just like, just like, what the fuck? And we were all just like, you're willing sort of in the fog of war to... I to maybe you're not introspective enough. You don't really think about you. Know, you don't really recognize all the red flags along the way. But it was at that point that everyone around him was just like enough, and it is time for you to resign. And we had the call with him that day when the AG report dropped out. That to all of our minds, there was no option for him except to drop out yeah. and to and resign. He was- he was grasping for anything he could get his hand on to the last possible second, too. He was. He was. And I talk about it a little bit in the book that he always had a habit as governor. You know, I, I talk about him in there as 
Well, I talk about a side of him in there that we call Bad Andrew, right? It's the sort of defiant, go-it-alone Andrew who will listen to no one, listen to no reason. And if he can't find someone who agrees with him, he'll keep making calls until one person finally will. And the only person he could get to agree that he shouldn't step down and resign was, of all people, President former President Bill Clinton, um, who said that he should make one last plea, go on television and make one last plea to the people of New York and say, you know, my fate is in your hands, not the politicians, and then see how that played out. Oh, boy. Of all the people to take advice from in that moment. But this goes to the heart of something really interesting about your arc as a person in politics. You know, you fell in love with this stuff early. You talk about the war room, about Bill Clinton's 1992 campaign, and which made a star of James Carville and George Stephanopoulos, right? Yeah. And, and you say, but let's be real, it's a very male movie, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, you know, this has been a male-dominated culture, but politics specifically. And, you know, you've seen it change a lot over the years, But uh, then you see the January 6th committee and this very behavior you're talking about with Cuomo, looking for somebody who will agree with you, this sort of the machismo of of Trump, it's like in many ways has not changed. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say when you said it's changed a lot. It has changed a fair amount. You know, when you look around the room today on a campaign there are more women, there are more people of color, there is more diversity versus, you know, when I'm in 2004, when I'm working for Tom Daschle in South Dakota, all the senior staff were white men. And it's it's not, it's not like that anymore. But um, you still see very few um, women who are really like at the upper echelons of presidential politics. And you do still see these leftovers. I th- you, you're completely right with Trump, uh, with Cuomo, and I don't know him well, but Mayor er- Eric Adams in New York, machismo is sort of his thing too. You do see a lot of guys who sort of who still play into those old stereotypes of the um, hard charging. Uh, raging bull male politicians that are sort of old school and surround themselves with the old school types of people. But it is changing slowly. And part of the reason, one of the reasons why I wrote this book was there hasn't really been a book like this that has been written by a woman behind the scenes in politics. And I wanted to show what it was like to be a woman in this male-dominated industry because it's transferable. I think not. it's not just applicable to politics, but to other industries. And you know, I wanted to show some of the some of the flaws of it, but some of the opportunities. And you know, hopefully, I don't know some teenage girl or can pick up the book and read it and the world is sort of demystified for them and maybe they join it because. I've been working in this industry now for 17 years, and for 17 years, no matter where I go, everyone asks, well, how, do you get, how did you get into politics? What's politics, what's it actually like? It still seems like such an opaque business for an industry that really touches and impacts every single person's life. 
it seems like every presidential race alters the media landscape in a new way. And we got new technologies every time. And you talk about in your book in 2012, when Twitter comes around, you're working for Barack Obama and Mitt Romney is sort of like a step behind on all of this. And it kind of has a huge impact on his campaign. But, you know, that's your job is working the media and knowing it and knowing how to block and tackle and thrust and parry within the whatever the game is at that time and in that moment. For instance, cable news and drudge used to be really the most powerful movers 20 years ago. And that has altered a lot, right? Yeah. And, and especially since Trump came into office, it's like as if all the old rules got blown up. And I'm just totally. curious, you know, what, you know, if you today, as you were asked when you joined Barack Obama's campaign, they said, get as many negative stories about Mitt Romney published as possible. That's what they said. <laughs> and you had to go on that mission, right? Yeah. Now, if you're doing that today, though, and somebody said, get as many negative stories about Ron DeSantis published as possible. How, where do you start? How do you do that? Where do you go? Who, what, what's the most powerful way to impact or get a message like across and to be effective and hit? So if I'm on a Democratic campaign and we're concerned about him coming out of a primary, the good news is this. There is a very, very vibrant right-wing news ecosystem. And so what I would try to do is try to you know, launder stories through there. Breitbart, Fox, you know, Newsmax, Daily Wire, Daily Caller, Free Beacon, those sorts of sites. Because I think what we've seen increasingly is that those types of sites are less likely to pick up from mainstream media. Um, Less likely, if, if you get a negative story about him in the Washington Post or New York Times, that maybe in, in the 10, 15 years ago, that might have been seen as like the ultimate coup. But today, if you really want something to take root, and especially among Republican primary voters, I would go straight to the right. That's interesting. And would you therefore exploit the sort of uh, the daylight between Trump and DeSantis? I mean, is that the strongest move right now? I mean, I'm just trying to think, like, what are you telling them? You're yeah. not in this job, but, you know, sure. uh, but what's uh, and I'm just curious because we're all paying attention to Ron DeSantis and like, what are his we don't really I, and I still don't feel like I know him, you know. Yeah. And so there's a lot of opportunity in that way to define him. So I so look, I don't know. I, I read this really good New Yorker story on him recently. I don't know if you read it, but yeah, I would encourage people to read it because it did give me a little bit. Um, more of a sense of who he is, but not much. He is he's a, he is a little bit hard to get a read on. But so our let me just speak from my experience of doing this with Mitt Romney and Mitt Romney in 2012 was running against Rick Santorum and Newt Gingrich. Those were his main opponents by the time I was on the campaign. And those campaigns were just so freaking hapless, right? They couldn't place oppo to save their lives. So it it fell upon me to do that. And so what I was trying to do since he was still in a primary was to place stuff that would put him at odds with the primary base. So that's what I would try to do today with Ron DeSantis is 
you know, are there things that he's, are, are there things in his record? And I'm sure there are, like the guy has a long congressional record. I'm, I'm sure that there are things from his time as governor that would put him at odds with the Republican base and uh, potentially hurt his standing with them there. That's the, that's the biggest way really to um, yeah. go after these guys in, in the primaries if, you're, if you think they're a Well, threat. that speaks – yeah, that, that speaks to the changes that have happened just since 2012. I mean that there used to be a time when – well, there was a time when Republicans would cooperate with the mainstream press, right? right. And that no longer – that doesn't even happen anymore, you know? It's true, though, because uh, when was the last time? Because I've noticed it in profiles, right? And Republican presidential candidates used to jump at the idea of getting profiled by the New Yorker or New York Times magazine. Um, And not even that many years ago. But now they've all sort of absorbed the mantra of Donald Trump's that the media is the enemy. And you're almost like a rhino if you talk to these people. Yeah, now I've noticed that as a journalist. And, you know, a lot of what we end up writing about, uh, we're speaking to a specific audience that's mostly liberal, mostly Democrats. And when you write about the right, it's mainly to stoke outrage and fear, <laughs> right? And right. Uh, it doesn't have any kind of nuance to it. Uh, so the Dexter Filkins profile in, uh, of that's who wrote that Ron DeSantis profile was kind of a traditional profile in many ways. It was sort of unique <laughs> to get a profile like that. But you're right. I, at the end of it, I wasn't 100% sure what I was looking at here. You know, just that he's sort of, uh, I don't know, a guy that's really interested in baseball and he's there's not maybe much <laughs> self-reflection going on there, you know. Um, but uh, let's talk for a minute about um, about Joe Biden. You must be having this conversation like 10 times a day or 15,000 times a day. Everybody I talk to is like so demoralized about the Democrats. They just think there's no there there. We're, there's, it's a party in ruins. There's no hope. There, Joe Biden can't message to save his life, or he doesn't do it, or there's somebody telling him not to do it, or they're afraid to do it. <laughs> you know, you've talked in your book about how you actually think that his rough edges and kind of, you know, occasionally gaff like speech and occasional whatever else he's going to say is good, that there's some positive to it and they're not taking advantage of it. But if you were to get into Joe Biden's uh, White House right now, I'll say, and clear out. You know, the old guard and say, okay, we're doing this starting today. What would happen? Um, Well, what would happen is what my understanding is that that is happening or is about to happen, which is that he is going to be going out there a lot more and communicating more aggressively, um, both on what the administration is doing proactively, but also about the choice that's ahead in the election. The The one thing I would say about Joe Biden is that he is not a natural attack dog. And uh, throughout his career, he's always emphasized the fact that 
Um, he has great working relationships with the other side. So he's never going to be the messenger that's out there, you know, ripping the face off of Republicans. And that's fine. That's fine. And so what would be smart for the White House to do is to sort of build up a bench of people who can go out there while you have Joe Biden out there, while you have Kamala Harris out there. And I think Kamala Harris can be a really valuable messenger for the White House, especially with Roe, with Roe as an issue in these elections, because even though the polling shows men and women generally poll the same on this issue, there's no question that women feel the issue of abortion, of choice, much more viscerally than men do, and that she's a much better messenger on the issue than he is. But I think that they should be, and my understanding is that they will be, going out there, you know, sort of more in the field, more across the country, and, um, you know, less behind a podium communicating. And I think that's smart. I would also advise them to lean on the Democratic bench across the country. Um, There are a lot of great young leaders across the country who can carry the torch for them, talk about how, you know, ARP has been great for their cities or what the infrastructure bill will do for their communities, or conversely, be the attack dogs against the Republicans. Because my main issue right now, and I and I think what you're talking about as well, is that a lot of the despair is that this is just so much seen as a referendum on the Democrats. And we know that if it is a referendum on the Democrats, that we will be screwed in November. It's just a fact. And however, if we go on the offense and we... And we turn this into a choice and really hammer home that that the Republicans have no plans for economic relief. They voted against everything from capping the price of insulin to, um, you know, importing baby formula to negotiating lower prescription drug prices and that they are nominating people for Senate and frankly, more troublingly, for governor who are election deniers and people who want to ban abortion in all instances, that's a terrain we can win on. And that's the switch that we need to, we we need to flip that switch pretty soon. And we have the opportunity to now, and we have the opportunity to now that um, a lot of these primaries are are taking place and the Republican nominees are being locked in. Because the Republican Senate and gubernatorial nominees we've seen thus far are way, way, way out there. Yeah, I would say so. And to your point, I just wanted to say that, you know, during the 2020 Democratic primary, there was this group of candidates who became the sort of Justice League row of Democratic team member. They, they, they were all backed behind Biden during that. Yeah. You know, when they nominated him, they all got behind him and they messaged for him. And of course— Pete Buttigieg was fantastic, and he's still fantastic as a messenger. Um, there just doesn't seem to be any organization there, you know, any kind of, like, uh, strategy. In 2012, um, when, I was, when I was working for Barack Obama, the Obama campaign did a very good job of this. I remember that we relied on, you know, mayors from across the country to communicate on his behalf on shows. We used governors because the reality is that most— 
most people don't want to hear from cabinet members and people in D.C. The closer uh, a representative is, like a mayor, I think mayors have a lot of credibility because they're on the ground. I think governors have a lot of credibility because, you know, they're in their communities. And it would be really, really smart for the Biden administration to lean more on them. Yeah, yeah. Well, and um, you are working with Michigan Democrat uh, Mallory McMorrow, who is seen as a figure who's who might offer a little glimmer of hope or a way to message or a way, you know, we need new faces. You know, the big critique right now is the the uh, gerontocracy. Yeah. Right. So, (laughs) so we need somebody, you know, under 75, uh, just maybe. So who are some other people that we can look to and kind of like follow them on Twitter, try to get get fascinated with um, who might be seen as coming forward and kind of giving us like a little bit of a preview of what's over the horizon of this country if it doesn't descend into fascist uh, dictatorship? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Um, Not dramatic at all. Um, Well, there are a number of great young leaders across the country, a number of great young up up and coming leaders under the age of 40. A few that I would highlight, you know, Mallory is one. Um, I have done a little bit of work with um, the mayor of the brand new mayor of Cincinnati, Aftab Pierval. He's got an amazing life story, but he's someone who is breathing like incredible new life into the city of Cincinnati and doing impressive stuff in terms of police reform, housing reform that I think is a model that will be a model for other cities. Quentin Lucas, another under age 40 mayor. He's the mayor of um, Kansas City. I am big fan of uh, Colin Allred. He is a congressman from Dallas. He is in his third term and is someone who's making a, um, is starting to make a name for himself on the national stage and has been involved a lot in on Ukraine as well. And Richie Torres is a congressman from, first-term congressman from the Bronx here who also has a unique life story. And what I like about all the folks that I just mentioned is that I think there's sometimes this stereotype of younger politicians, of under 40 politicians that they're either a member of the squad, they're super far left, they're DSA, or they're like Madison Cawthorn, super far right. And the the folks I just mentioned are all, you know, actually pretty reasonable people um, who I think can appeal not just to Democrats, but to people across the political spectrum. And they are people who, for lack of a better word, are, are, are like, you know, act more like normal people, right? They don't just spend all their time yelling on Twitter or um, yelling on cable news. And I really think that we need to get away it would be a lot healthier for our body politics and that it would be more appealing to more people if politics was a little less yelly, screamy um, and a little less drawn to the extremes because most people aren't in that extreme 10% of the right or that extreme 10% of the left. They're somewhere right in between. Well, we talk about this all the time on this podcast, you know, there is no center, but everybody wants the center. They're like, why right. doesn't it exist? Where is it? And, you know, you're in the exact sort of job, uh, which is a challenging one, I would say, to break these people through without, uh, you know, having to do something 
radically stupid or say something crazy or throw bombs on cable news. That's got to be like the main challenge now is to have them take hold, right? I think the Mallory McMorrow, you know, viral video thing was sort of like, oh, wait, you know, maybe there's a way, <laughs> right? Right. I felt the same way when I, and this was a little bit higher amped up thing, but when Beto came out and confronted the governor, I was like, hell yeah, finally, somebody's just like getting out and speaking truth. He didn't sound like a maniac. He didn't say unreasonable things. He was just saying, hey, we got to speak up. We have to stand up. Exactly. And and that's the thing is I'm not saying that that they need to be centrist necessarily in their politics. I'm saying maybe just don't be like extreme in their politics and mm-hmm. embrace policies that only five, ten percent of ten, fifteen percent of the population support. But you know, a lot of it is a matter of tone and style and you know, sometimes like, look, on the Republican side, it's clear that anger is in vogue these days, and whoever can hate, uh, whoever the Republican base hates the most is the king of that day or queen of that day. And on the left, there sometimes is, I don't know how to say, like sort of a school marm, school monitor vibe mm-hmm. where <laughs> yeah. um, we're, we're policing people's language or um, seen as looking down on people, you know, from the middle of the country or from different backgrounds. And there is a middle ground between those two. And I am hopeful that, and I do think that there is a, a generation of younger politicians that has had enough of the endless, you know, circular warfare in Washington, that they are trying to sort of go for a more common sense tone. And, you know, Beto really was sort of on the front lines of that in his Senate campaign in 2018 when he was running against Ted Cruz. Um, And I know you've covered him quite a lot, but when he was going around Texas area, he went to every community. He didn't just go to blue communities. He went to every community, talked to people who were both Republicans and Democrats, and he treated everyone with respect. He didn't say, just because you're a Republican, just because you voted for Donald Trump, just because, you know, you might have conservative views that that makes you an evil person. And sometimes in the Democratic primary in 2020, when Pete would be on stage with with um, some of his competitors, I almost felt that tone from them, that the, it was sort of just like, if you're a Republican, fuck off. I don't yeah. want your support. You're you know, inherently evil. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't care if you decide to see the light and come to our side. You're irredeemable. And I'm of the belief that we shouldn't treat voters and people as irredeemable. And that if we do, we're just going to be in this forever, this never ending twilight zone, seesaw element of politics where every two years we just go you know, flip between Republican, Democrat, and it's just endless partisan warfare where nothing gets done. Yeah. But in terms of, and I agree with that, everything you just said is interesting, but in terms of strategy about figuring out how to message across, it's the media that's also like this. It's come mm-hmm. to reflect the radicalization of the partisans, partisanship. But what do you think about, oh, well, first of all, Pete Buttigieg going on Fox News and speaking in complete paragraphs and, and not being... Uh, letting himself be interrupted by the host and getting a message on that screen, right? 
and and it should be noted that as soon as he's off the screen, they spend the next thirty minutes trying to you know unravel what he did and blunt it and everything. Because but but he did manage to get some airtime across to the other side, which I think is valuable. And then Gavin Newsom running these ads in Florida and, and going on Truth Social, and I'm gonna I'm going to engage them. What do you think of of this? I uh, let me speak to Pete's strategy. So we decided early on. Uh, in 2019, that Pete was going to engage with Fox News. And part of it was because it, it's got a big audience. And, you know, there are a lot of Democrats that watch Fox News. It's not just, it's, there, it is caricatured as just this, that only like Republicans, only the far right watches it. it. It's just not true. And also, a lot of Latino and a lot of black Democrats watch Fox News. It's about, yes, reaching an audience that, you know, people are very loyal to their to their news sources. And there are a lot of people that only get their news from Fox News. And so we wanted to go on there to make sure that we were reaching that audience, one. But two, there's also a signal that I think it sends people that in a time where we're seeing politicians more and more only speaking to people and audiences that share their viewpoints. You know, Democrats only going on MSNBC, Trump as president only going on Fox News. I don't think he ever went on MSNBC or CNN during his time as president. Um, You know, I think he would take questions from them at briefings or whatever. But when you're seeing that, there's something refreshing about seeing leaders who are willing to to reach across the aisle, to go um, and engage with the other side, because it shows, you know, maybe sublimi- subliminally that they are willing to listen to other people, that they respect people with different views. They understand that you will never hear from them if they're not on that channel. And that if they don't go on there, it's essentially like saying, F you. I don't care about you. I don't mm-hmm. want your vote. And we can't expect to, you know, there's so many things that contribute to the political polarization right now. There's no one thing that's going to fix it. But little things like that, to me, are good faith signals from politicians that they're going to at least try. They're at least going to be a little bit different because like, imagine if, if, if we just continue this way where, you know, Democrats only go on MSNBC and pod save America, Republicans only go on, um, Newsmax, Fox news and Ben Shapiro. It's just going to end up just being like two Americas. And I think more and more we need politicians who are willing to engage in good faith with the other side. And there are ways to do that on Fox News. And I hear your point that, okay, so he got in these paragraphs and then they attacked him for the next half hour. Sure, they did that during the presidential race, but you think they weren't going to attack Pete anyway? They attack Pete all the time on Fox News. Uh, They attack Democrats all the time on Fox News. So you have two options. You can have Fox News viewers only see the caricature of, of you, only see the caricature that Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson and whoever paints of you, or you can go on and make your case occasionally. And what we found was in Iowa, for instance, we did a town hall nine days before the caucuses. Pete did really, really, really well in the reddest parts of Iowa, the most rural parts of Iowa. And our 
organizers there told me that after the Fox News town hall, a lot of people who were Trump voters, Republicans came in and said, I will be precinct captains for you. I will caucus for you. You know, it's open there. So, you know, Republicans can do that because they saw him on Fox News. He sounded reasonable and they liked that he just took the time to talk to them, even if they didn't agree with him on 100 percent. Of, of issues and sometimes just showing a little respect and taking time to talk to other people um, goes a long way in politics today. Let me ask you this uh, before we wind down here. Um, obviously, Pete Buttigieg has a, uh, a future in the Democratic Party and in American politics. What should we look for? What do you think he's going to do next? What should he do? And are you going to be involved? Um, so what he will be doing next is selling the hell out of that infrastructure bill. Um, he's traveling all over the country and talking about the new roads, bridges it will build, the good paying jobs it will create, the underserved communities that it will help. Um, and on top of that, you know, I think he will be a very critical messenger for the Biden administration in these midterms because I don't think there's a question that he is the Democrats' best television communicator. He is just uniquely skilled at um, navigating town halls and interviews. And I mean, the you know, his Fox News interviews are, are not, and I'm not just saying this because I was paid by paid by him at some point. <laughs> they 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 are you know they are artful and they're really really enjoyable to watch. So I think that's his role. But to the extent that I've heard him talk about you know what's next, he said that he's not sure if he's going to run for office again. I hope he does, but there are a lot of questions up in the air that we don't know and. I personally think that Joe Biden's going to run again in 2024, um, but I would like to see a future for Pete Buttigieg in in American politics. I don't know what it will be. I don't know if it will continue to be on a cabinet level. I don't know if he'll run for elected office again. Um, but I think he we need more people like him in in American politics and. I don't know if I'll have a role with him. You know, these are so many questions so far down the line. Well, he's young enough, and so are you, that uh, 2028 isn't some crazy, crazy faraway place. But, uh, and it's interesting that last week, between the, you know, all the stories the New York Times wrote to try to either get Joe to do something uh, or get out of Dodge, was that wild or what? I mean, yeah, it, it was bizarre. Also, because... It's not like any of these people that they're talking about. You think Gavin Newsom is going to primary Joe Biden? No. Do you think Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg is going to primary Joe Biden? No. Do you think J.B. Pritzker is? No. Do you think, I don't even think AOC or Ro Khanna or Bernie Sanders or Warren would. So it's, I, I, I don't know where it's coming from. It's it's all pretty thinly sourced. Um, and some of it is something that frustrates me a little bit about the media is I've heard from, you know, my friends who are in Washington that cover the White House that they are so 
board by the Biden White House. And it's like, you know, Mm. with Trump, every day was so dramatic and they could write these cataclysmic stories and there was all this palace intrigue, right? And it it was like a daily soap opera and you don't really quite have that with Biden. So I don't know if that's an element there, but outside of the sort of DC parlor talk, I really, really have not heard any serious, you know, discussion about Biden not being the 2024 nominee, except in, like, largely the New York Times. Yeah. Well, it is true that the media's um, numbers have fallen off a cliff in recent months, and so— They're sort of like uh, hitting Joe with a hot poker, trying to get him to dance a little bit. Um, (laughs) So we'll see if that happens. And uh, your book is, besides being insanely entertaining and a great fun ride, an interesting um, look at how the warp and woof uh, of politics and how it's changed and how it is continues to change. But some parts of it stay the same. And in fact, I would say um, the parts that stay the same are maybe where the hope lies, because we tend to look at the world as it is right now and think that it's it can never be, you know, that politics is broken and that therefore nothing can change. But maybe it's out the way it's always been and it can change. And uh, I think you might agree with that. I, I do. And I am an internal optimist about politics. And I'm probably the last person who should be if you've read some of the stories in my book. A lot of people who who are more squeamish or have weaker stomachs would be like, oh, my God, um, this is a business full of liars and sociopaths and psychopaths and whatever. But to me, I sure, there are those bad actors out there, but I just know that there are so many good Democrats across the country that there is this great bench, this next generation of new stars. We just need to look for them and we need to stop thinking that the answers for our party are all going to come out of, you know, what's in Washington, who's in Congress, who's in the Senate, and start looking to sort of the next generations of leaders who are in these state capitals, who are in these cities. And that's why people really responded to Beto in 2018. That's why people really responded to Pete in 2019 and 2020. And why are people responding this way to Mallory McMorrow, who is a state senator in Michigan? It's because when they hear these voices who, and I know Beto was a congressman, but he just didn't have that feel of a congressman, you know? Sure. It's that, is there, is that when you hear these people, you realize that not everyone is yet infected by the like political virus that turns people into these these robots or inhuman machines. Yeah. Well, I I appreciate hearing that from somebody who's down in the trenches and, uh, you know, (laughs) would have every reason to be cynical. So thank you so much, Liz Smith, for coming on here and talking about uh, your book, Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story. It's out there now. Go read it. It's a hell of a lot of fun and fascinating and interesting in every way. So uh, we hope to have you back. Okay, great. Thanks for having me, Joe. And that's our podcast this week. A hearty thank you to Liz Smith for coming on the podcast this week. And thank you to my co-host, Emily Jane Fox, and our producer and editor, Brett Fuchs. Remember, Wednesdays is when you're going to get your brand new hit of Inside the Hive. 
from here on out. Please support our advertisers the way they support this program and come back again next Wednesday. See you then.